what I'm saying, actually receiving Jesus. So last week it was, uh, we titled it actually following Jesus, um, like actually following him. And today is actually receiving him. Uh, so Minda, I don't know if, I don't know if she was thinking about this or aware of it really, but um, you know, it's one thing to, f- to follow him, but there's another, there's another thing of if we, we have to receive him, and you can't receive him the way we want him to be. And we oftentimes try to reshape Jesus into uh, what we want. That whole thing of God made us in his image, and forever since the fall, man has continuously been trying to make God in their image. Uh, conform to what is comfortable to us or what can, is convenient to us, and God is God, and Jesus is God. And so we want to see him for who he really is and receive him. And so just a couple ideas around that that we'll look at today. Uh, one is that his identity, if you're, you know, in other words, who he is, his identity and his calling was confirmed by what he did, not, not what he said about himself. That's important for the modern-day church, by the way. I'll talk about that more later. Um, another thing is that we reject Jesus. A couple ways that we might reject Jesus is when we become experts or when we are too narrow because Jesus is not going to fit into our box. But we don't want to just look at how we reject him. We receive Jesus. You ready? Drum roll. Humility and faith. It really is that simple, humility and faith, and it's always that way. In fact, there are only two, every time that the New Testament talks about receiving grace, it's the only kind of things by which we receive those that the scripture refers to is faith and humility. So the same would be true of Jesus. We receive Jesus, the grace of God, through humility and faith. So let's read the chapter. Yes, I said that. Read the chapter, Luke 7, 1 through 50, and, um, and then we'll look at uh, those three points that I just mentioned. So Luke chapter 7, verse 1. Now, when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. And so when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving. I'm reading in the New King James, if you're wondering. For he... Uh, loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. And then Jesus went with them. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I do not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to the one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. So when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent returning to the house found the servant well, who had been sick. Verse 11. And now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Uh, if you don't know, in that culture, if you're, you're a widow, you have no husband, and now you have no male offspring, you're in trouble uh, in terms of people to care for you. 
and a large crowd from the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. And then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And so he who is dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. And then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. Verse 18. And then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. And John, calling two of his disciples, uh, sent to him, excuse me, uh, two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And at that very hour, he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. And Jesus answered and said to them, Go tell John the things that you have seen and heard, the blind, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and be blessed as he was not offended because of me. And when the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John and said, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Rhetorical question, obviously not. That's, anybody can see that. Uh, but what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And the Lord said to what? Then shall I liken the men of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned for you, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came neither eating or drinking, and you said, He is a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by all her children. Verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, who, uh, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, This man if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one who forgave more, whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, 
but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So again, receiving, actually receiving Jesus. First thing that we're going to look at here. Uh, the varying things that we're looking at here. So it's going to, but it's all fitting under the umbrella of what I just said, actually receiving Jesus. And the first is that Jesus's identity and calling was confirmed actually by what he did, by what he did. Uh, when I was an early Christian, I, I um, at the age of 17, which my oldest son is turning today, uh, at the age of 17, I gave my life to Jesus, and uh, it was roughly a year later that um, I met the first other actually like born-again Christian. So I spent a year not having any fellowship, and, and, uh, and I got involved in a, in a church, and, and I started growing. And that summer, I had what was my first spiritual dream. And so uh, and by, by that, I mean like a dream from the Lord. Um, the way that I've discerned those are dreams that are incredibly uh, vivid, very, almost like real. Like you wake up and feel like you would just like, it's, it's like real. And also there's a sense of usually the presence of the Lord. Um, you sense like that sense of his presence. I don't know how to say it otherwise. In this dream, um, I was actually, I was playing golf. <laughs> And it's amazing how, how God uses things like this. So I was actually playing golf, and I was using a club, and it was just like this club was just not the right length for me, and I couldn't hit the right golf ball. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't hit the golf ball. And um, there was a canopy behind me, and there were three men sitting at the canopy, but it was shaded, and I couldn't see them distinctly. And now looking back, I realized that that represented the Trinity the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I heard a man from under the canopy say, that's not good for him. And, and it was in my club, he said something about my club being too long. And I remember in my heart, this sounds so funny, in my heart I thought, that's ridiculous, I'm so tall. Like, long clubs are what I need. So it was kind of like this prideful reaction. He said, but I'm, uh, I said, we have something, it's old and used, but it's still got good use in it. And he gave me, a wooden, what I know now is a key. I didn't know in my dream, I didn't know what it was, but like I've gone back and Googled this stuff and found that that's a key. It's a wooden thing, like before the Romans made keys into wooden tongue and groove things or whatever you call them, the ancient Egyptians I think used like these wooden things with little like pieces sticking out. That's what was handed to me. And then, and then pieces of paper that that I recognized as something that I had written things that I felt the Lord speaking to me. And, and I took this key and I, and I somehow instinctively knew I was supposed to put the two together. We, we long left the idea of golf, by the way, <laughs> by this point. And it seemed so weird. It was like a, a key, but, like, but key speaks of revelation in Matthew 16. To you I'll give the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And, and I put this key into this paper 
And instantly, it was like I was transported and I saw like this throng and I kind of just in, intuitively knew this was like an ancient scene. This was like a, a scene of scenes, if I could, like, like, a, like a, a great moment in all of history. And there was this throng of people and they were all celebrating and there was a sense of anticipation of this one coming. And, and I actually, in my dream, was thinking maybe it's like Jeremiah or Elijah. I mean, I actually thought that. And uh, now it's obvious it was all, these people were all anticipating the coming of, of the one, of this, of this, of Jesus. And there's this thing in all of human, humanity, there's this thing of, we all kind of are looking for the one, right? There's like this idea of, of somebody needs to save us. Somebody needs to be the hero. And, um, and that is who John the Baptist saw by the Father, saw that there was one coming after him who he was not worthy to unloose his, his sandals, he says. There's this one coming. And uh, this is Jesus. We must receive Jesus as this one who is, is coming. But how do we actually know who this Jesus is? And uh, if I could just point out, firstly, is that Jesus preferred, in terms of the revelation to humanity, who he was, he preferred doing the work rather than talking about it. He preferred doing it over talking about it, actually doing it. So if you'll look with me back in verse 20, when the man had come to him, they said, John the Baptist uh, has sent us to you, saying, are you the coming one? Again, there's this idea of there's... All of humanity is waiting, has this sense of one coming. Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And that very hour, he, cure, he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind. He gave sight. He did, right? He did. He did something. And Jesus answered and said to them, yes, I am the Christ. Right? Is that what he said? No. He says, go and tell John the things that you have seen and heard. It was action that he pointed to. He didn't answer the question directly himself. That the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. The ministry of Jesus, according to that description that Jesus gave, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, deaf hear, dead are raised, all of that is a demonstration of the power of the kingdom, correct? And then the poor had the gospel preached to them, which is a proclamation of the kingdom. Well, Jesus' ministry, in one sense, other than the death and resurrection, could be summed up in the proclamation of the kingdom and the demonstration of the kingdom. That's what he was sent to do while here for those three and a half years in his ministry. His ministry was that, and can I say, Border City Church, we can, and I'm speaking... Not at you, I am speaking with you. We can wax eloquent about Isaiah 61 and the vision that we feel that God has given us. But can I say it is simply words. It is wonderful, beautiful, inspirational concepts that mean nothing until you and I take action. And the world doesn't care about our vision but they do care about what we actually do. 
that's where this thing becomes useful, both to the world and to God in the earth, is in our doing, just like it was with Jesus. Jesus obviously cared less about talking about what he was called to do and more about doing what he was called to do. The call that Jesus had from the Father was a call to take a form of action. Summed up, demonstrate the kingdom, uh, proclaim the kingdom. That both of which are actions. You got to do it. And uh, we, like we've been saying for the, next, the last number of weeks, we've been trusting God for actionable steps. Minda said earlier, it's possible for us to get cozy, something like that, to get comfortable. Actionable steps get you out of that cozy place, out of that comfortable place. Actually taking a step of faith, doing the thing, being obedient. Uh, Jesus has not called us to intentions and well wishes. And I'm saying this again, not at you, with you, <laughs> guilty as charged. I can talk about it. I can pray about it. But it's got to interpret into actual action. Jesus is interested in doing the work rather than getting recognition. Jesus is interested in doing the work rather than recognition. Can I suggest that there are so many in the church who are leading churches, who are in ministries, who are wanting to be known as apostle this and bishop that and archbishop and bishop pastor power, you know. In South Africa, there was, there was this billboard on the side of the street and you saw the, the preacher's face and it said, a night of bliss with Pastor Chris. <laughs> and it's like this whole self-proclamation of exalting myself. Can you imagine if Jesus were here today, would he have a billboard promoting his ministry and making sure that you know, I am the Messiah, the Christ. He could have done that and been accurate. Somebody can be called as an apostle and call themselves an apostle and be accurate. But maybe Jesus wouldn't do that. If Jesus is asked, are you the one? He won't answer the question. Most pastors are like, here's my business card. See, it says apostle, bishop, pastor, evangelist, prophet. Jesus says, I'm not even going to answer the question. I don't want any recognition. I want to get the work done. You can say what I am. Let the Father say, I, I don't need that from you. And all of that stuff, by the way, is all rooted in insecurity. It's all insecurity. Our need to be known for who we are. And I've seen pastors who want to be spiritual fathers. And so they uh, will call themselves spiritual fathers and bring in their sons and, and all this stuff. But then they get to a place where down the road, now they're threatening people if they're not relating to me. And you're going to walk away from your blessing if you don't relate to me as, as spiritual father. And I want to say, did Jesus do anything like that? And some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. And if you don't, like, good on you. <laughs> Stay away! No. And honestly, I, I, I say that with humility. I could wind up there myself. Why? Because I struggle with the same insecurities. The same thing that would thrust me into a need of being seen for who I'm called to be. And, and the deceptive thing is, I really am called to be something. But I don't need you, or we all don't need other people to give that to us. 
The Father gives us identity. We're secure in that. Don't need any recognition. Go get the work done. Serve people. Love him. Love people. And so Jesus is interested in doing the work rather than getting recognition. Steve Martell so wonderfully told us a few weeks ago that there's this table, there's this banquet, and he referenced in John 14 that scene where they're like jockeying for position at the table, and he told us as a church, take a low seat at the table. Like Jesus told us to. Take a low seat and rather have somebody invite you into the one more lofty positions, but assume the low seat. And I would say to us, personally, for each of us as individuals, let's drop any ambition to be something. It is, it's, let me tell you right now, tell myself, tell all of us, it's a black hole that will lead, or the rabbit hole. The, the quest to be something is coming from a need in you that will never be fulfilled. It's a lie. You don't need to be anything. You are something already. Focus on him. Get your focus off yourself. You don't need anything from this world. You need him. He's called you who you're, you're supposed to be. Drop any ambition. And then as a church, collectively, could I... Can I ask, let's drop any ambition of achievement and focus uh, that, that we, we, we need to find success as a church, right? Yeah. And rather, let's focus collectively, to partner together to get a job done. Not to work. It's by grace. It's not getting work done. We're not working hard. It's by grace. It's beautiful. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. But there is a job. It's called people. Let's do that. Let's have actionable steps towards that. Demonstrating and proclaiming the kingdom of God. There is, like I just said, there is security when we make it about getting the work done. There's security as opposed to insecurity. There's security when we rather focus on Jesus and doing what he says rather than us being or being recognized. Why? Number one, you've got nothing to prove. You've only got people to serve. Nothing to prove. If you need to be recognized as this, I don't know, whatever it is, evangelist, prophet, whatever, then you're going to start doing things with the intention of trying to have people recognize you. And that will, that will pervert your ministry, I can tell you now. But if you're just focused on Jesus and obeying him, and you kind of stumble into who you are, you know what I mean? And doing, doing the call, that's the way to do it. There's nothing to prove, only people to serve. Another reason that there's security in, in the way Jesus did it is because it's all about love rather than promotion of self. When you make it about getting the job done rather than being known for who you are, it ends up being about love rather than promoting yourself. And here's another clincher, is that our identity comes from him internally. I know what he's called me to do and what I'm supposed to do out of a relationship with him in, internally, not what I do or what people say about me externally. My identity can't be found in what I do or in what people are telling me about who I am. And therefore, I don't need that. I don't need to do anything to prove anything. I don't need people to say, let me, let me make a little asterisk. I do need to be walking in relationship with people that God has connected me to in the body of Christ who can affirm my calling. 
And if anyone in this room is saying who they are, I am a this or that, and no one else that like is in your life and walking with you is saying that, I would suggest humble yourself and drop all that. Okay, so now let's look at receiving Jesus versus rejecting Jesus. If you look with me, verse 23, Jesus says this at the end of this thing that he responds to the, to the disciples of John the Baptist. He says, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. What is Jesus saying? Basically, blessed is the one who receives me. Blessed. To receive the blessing, we, we've got to receive Jesus for who he actually is, right? And I, can I say a warning to us? It is possible to be a Christian. In other words, to have that moment where you yield your life, where Jesus reveals himself to you, you respond to his grace, you become a born-again Christian, and to subsequently reject his leadership in your life. Every bit as much as God's people have always done that. Started on this track with God. We're leaving Egypt. We're headed to the promised land. And we reject your leadership and wander for 40 years. Right? We enter into the promised land. We're loving God. And this is awesome. We're taking territories. And we fall into idolatry. Don't think that because you're a Christian or even a churchgoer that we can't fall in the same pattern ourselves. It happens all the time. So how are some ways that Jesus can be rejected for it actually is? One is when we become an expert. Have you ever been an expert? A Jesus expert? A scriptural expert? I know the word of God. And uh, if you look with me in verse 29, let's uh, pop back up there. So what, what are we talking about just in verse 29, just to give context again? We're talking about John the Baptist, and Jesus brings up this kind of topic of John the Baptist to the crowds that were around him. And, he, and it says that and when all the people heard him talking about John the Baptist and how John was this great prophet, it says, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. Who are tax collectors? Because we're not just talking about the IRS, you know what I'm saying? The tax collectors in that time, were like modern-day thugs. Mm -hmm. They were reviled by society. They were, uh, they were Jews who were exploiting their own people for the benefit of themselves and to give money to the Romans who were, like, oppressing, if anything, God's people. I mean, it was like heinous, selfish thuggery. They were hated, right? Tax collectors justified God having been baptized with the baptism of John but the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. In other words, by John. Who were the Pharisees and lawyers? They, those were the ones who were the experts in the scriptures. The Pharisees were the ones who were the most given to following the letter of the law and honoring God with their lives and honoring above all things the written scripture and exalting it. Those were the people who actually rejected John, whom God had sent when he came. Isn't that something? So what I would like to just kind of warn us, do we think that perhaps there are Pharisees and lawyers, not literally, they're not known as Pharisees, but Pharisees and lawyers in our society today? 
Who do you think they would mostly be among? The Christians or the non-Christians? Probably the Christians, the experts, the ones who know. And I want to say, let's beware. This scripture is not given to us so that we can look down on the Pharisees. It's, it's so that we are warned to not become one of them. And, uh, and, and just to say, like the tax collectors. What was the thing about the tax collectors? They knew they weren't experts in the things of God. Like, we have obviously abandoned the, the way of the Scripture. We're, we've abandoned our own people, right? They're not confused about whether they are as holy as the Pharisees. And when the grace of God and the forgiveness of God and John the Baptist comes to repent and to turn, they responded because they weren't confused as to whether or not they were guilty. But something about the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected that opportunity. Why? Because they did not see a need to do it. Let us never get to the place where when God wants to correct his church, wants to bring some change into our lives, we don't even perceive it because surely that doesn't apply to us. We can be outpaced by those that we think are thugs who will respond to Jesus if because of our professional Christianity, we don't even hear his voice. Number two, ways that we can reject Jesus is being narrow. If you drop uh, down uh, with me in verse 33, Jesus says, For John the Baptist came neither... He was talking about the people who had rejected both not only John the Baptist but himself as well. He says, For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. So like there was this... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Not abstinence, but um, teetotaling. Yeah, but there was like, uh, hmm. yeah, they were not eating bread or drinking wine. <laughs> and you say he has a demon. The son of man, in other words, Jesus, has come eating and drinking. And you say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It's like no matter which side they couldn't actually receive Jesus or perceive him. And so I want to ask us a question. Do we equate God with the form that we've known him? Because the disciples of John the Baptist came to John. The disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus and they said, why do we fast and repent and your disciples eat, drink, and and Kind of party it up. What, like, what, what's the deal here? And that's when Jesus started talking about how you can't pour new wine into an old wineskin, if you remember that story. The whole idea is equating God with the form that we've known him. In other words, have we encountered God and then we somehow experience God, but then we, we end up saying that God is this. He fits in this box of what I know him and everything that he does future has to fit into that God box. Or are we able to perceive him in various ways that he wants to manifest himself? When uh, Let's go back to college again real quick. When I was around that time, that story I said earlier, I was at, um, in, in university, college as we say in America, and uh, I was in this campus ministry that was like this kind of non-denominational, kind of has this charismatic thing, and it was multicultural, and it was 
you know, we had like gospel music and we had like, like contemporary praise and worship and it was young and all this kind of stuff. And then I go home for the summer and I'm with my parents who are Roman Catholics. And, the, and, and I see this thing in the church bulletin for a charismatic Catholic prayer group. And I'm like, okay, well, let's, let's, and I don't have a car. And so I asked my parents, would they take me to this? And they end up going. And so every week over the summer on Wednesday night, I would go to this charismatic Catholic prayer group. Over here in life ministry, this campus ministry that I had been a part of, Catholics were possibly like the Antichrist, the Catholic Church. It was, it was the, it was the, uh, and, and I see Sharon sh- nodding her head. You don't even know. You don't. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Precisely, right. And, and but, but you don't even know what it's like down in the Bible Belt because. Down there, it's like there's like a whole theology amongst evangelicals of like it is like the Catholic Church is like the 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 uh, Babylon. It's and then and then I go to this. So like like I remember like saying, well, I grew up a Catholic, you know, to friends, and they would be like, oh, well, thank God, you know, God, Jesus, Jesus saved you, and I'd be like, well, I mean, yeah, but like that's not the thing though. And then I go to this charismatic Catholic prayer group, and there's like laced with like all these references to these people. Everybody else has kind of like left the one true church. And I was in a place of like betwixt two worlds. And that, and who is right? And I remember like coming to a, 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 I mean, a serious agony of soul and praying one night and having an encounter with God. And it was like he lifted my eyes off of the mess down here to see up from here. And, I, and it, I, I saw his church, all those who had placed their faith in Jesus, not, not all the names of the denominations and the things that separate us, but his church. And I realized I'm free. And even if people see all these divisions and these distinctions, there is one Jesus, one kingdom, you know, one Lord, one baptism, one truth. And none of us have it all, and just I was free in it. My point, though, <laughs> in saying this, is the thing of narrowness. That's what I encountered in the church. Narrowness. Well, God can't be over there. And then I went over there, and God was there. I was experiencing God in this charismatic pr- prayer group. Same Jesus that I experienced over there in life ministry. Same presence, same gifts of the Spirit, same all the stuff. It was just like... The passion for Jesus all there, but narrowness was in the hearts of, of people. And so uh, his name, his name, we speak of this burning bush. Thank you for bringing that up. When, G- when Moses was walking through the desert and God appeared to him in a burning bush and called him to go back and to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And he said, well, who should I say sent me? And he reveals himself. He, God, he says, he says in English, he basically says something like this. I am who I am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I am not who you want to make me. I am the only entity in all of existence who is entirely self-existent. I determine my own self and I determine everybody else. You are who I made you to be, but I'm the only one who makes myself who I am, and we try to put God in a box and say, well, that can't be God because that's not what I've known him. God has appeared as a burning bush. He has manifested as rivers, uh, streams of living waters, many waters. He's appeared as a son. He's appeared as a father. He's, 
He's appeared in many different ways, and we can't be so reject what he's doing in this generation, in our life, and in our time. I'm not saying everything is God. All religions are God. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying to have a humble heart to where we don't put him in a box and can't find him when he's manifesting. And if, it is, and if he is manifesting, it will always point to Jesus as Lord. Jesus. So let's not just talk about the negative about how we can reject him. Let's just quickly touch on, and, and we'll end with this, that how we actually receive him. Faith and humility. So let's look at that for uh, humility if we, if we can. Go with me to verse 36. It says, then, then one of the Pharisees, do you remember who the Pharisees are? I know most of you would, but yeah, the Pharisees, the experts, the people who are religiously proud. One of them asked him, Jesus, to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner... So right now we've got two characters in this story other than Jesus. We've got a Pharisee who's kind of the religious expert, right? And then we've got a woman. We don't know what her sin was, but the Bible says that she was a sinner. We've got a Pharisee and we've got a sinner. And we, and we see juxtapose these two characters in this story um, to show us something of humility. She was certainly not, we don't know what her sin was, but she was certainly not a religious expert. And when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. I don't know exactly, but I, I think I've read somewhere that the, an, uh, something of this size of this oil may have been comparable to a year's salary to the average person at the time. We're talking about lavish gift here, whatever it was. Drop down with me to verse 44 after, because we already read the story, but I just want to point this out. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, who is Simon? Simon's the actual name of this Pharisee who invited Jesus to dinner. He said to Simon, do you see this woman? Speaking of the sinner, I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came and you did not anoint my head with oil. This woman has anointed my feet with a year's salary worth of oil. My, my words. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Let me just make something clear. Jesus was not commending this woman for having many sins. That's not the point. Like, if you sin a whole lot, that's good, because then you're going to love Jesus a lot, you know. Or if you don't sin a whole lot, you know, you're probably not going to have that much of a love relationship with Jesus, because, like, you know, you really need to sin it up big to love him. That's not, that's not what he's saying. He's not commending her for her many sins. He's, he's commending her for her recognition of her need. And either of them could have done the same. And sometimes our religious expertism keep us from understanding that. Remember, the gospel is for the poor, the poor in spirit, those who understand their need. Let's look at these two characters real quick, juxtaposed against each other. Pride, which would certainly be represented in Simon, who didn't even do anything, didn't anoint Jesus. He just kind of had Jesus over, didn't anoint him, didn't show him really any honor as such. Pride brings Jesus into our thing, but humility seeks Jesus where he is. 
Simon's like, um, come here. I, I'm, I'm a Pharisee. I'm a big shot around here. I'm a religious person. You seem to be doing some big religious thing. I'll endorse you by inviting you into my house. You're privileged, Jesus, to come into my house, and I'll, I'll allow you to say some things if you need to say some things in my house. Woman, sinning woman, she's not completely different attitude. She's saying, even if this is a Pharisee's house and I would ordinarily not be allowed in there, if that's where Jesus is, I need to get to him. I'm not missing my opportunity. I'm going to seek and find and get to him wherever he may be found. You see those two? Jesus, pride will invite Jesus as a tag-along to what we're doing. And I, I would say to us, there, there are, we can be in a place, there could be some in this room, you kind of don't know this, your next step of what you're going to be doing. And some of us can kind of like do our thing and try to tag Jesus onto it, which is what many Christians do. Does that make sense? As opposed to lavish everything of yourself, your whole year's salary, so to speak, upon him and say, Jesus, have your way. You're worthy of all of it. In fact, I'm not even worthy of any of it. It's by grace that I even have anything and it's all yours. We're not tagging Jesus on and thinking, oh, well, we're good. We're, we're asking God to bless it. We're not just doing it. And so I want to ask ourselves, do we try to tag Jesus onto what we're doing? Or do we find where Jesus is so we can lavish everything upon him? God doesn't, doesn't call us to bless our plans. He called us to himself. And his plans are already blessed. And then another just kind of point from this is that pride thinks it's doing a favor to Jesus by including him. Humility sees only the favor that he's done for us. I've got nothing to give you in reality. You've got my heart. And everything that I am, but it's nothing. You're the one who did everything. That's a completely different viewpoint. So a couple questions to ask us. Do we feel good about how we've served him? Kind of proud about how we've made sacrifices, how we've served in the ministry, done do we feel good about that? Or do we feel amazed that by his grace we get to serve him? Do we compare our spiritual level with others? You know, I'm relative to most people in this culture, I am doing good. Or do we revel in his grace that enables us to do anything that it is that we do for him? Trinity's doing so well, by the way. I mean, amazingly well. You just, well I don't know what you said, but it was cute. Oh. <laughs> uh, Oh, thanks. <laughs> oh, that was, uh, we are friends, I can tell. We're on our last point, so, so, uh, she is. You're better than our dog, that's true. Faith, faith, way that we receive Jesus, faith. And if you'll pop with me back up there to, uh, and I did say, this is the last point, uh, back up to verse 6, all the way at the top. This is that Roman centurion. And uh, his servant is sick. 
And he sent some of the elders of, of the city that he lived in to go find Jesus and to ask him to come and to heal the servant. Verse 6, it says, Then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Would you agree with me? That's, that's an expression of humility, right? But can I say that it can't end with just an expression of humility, realizing how unworthy we are? That's, that doesn't get us anywhere but bad. It, it ultimately is all about not having our navel gaze looking at ourself, our own unworthiness, but lifting our eyes to see Jesus for who he is. He already sees all the crud, and he still loves you. So if he loves you, might as well stop looking at your own crud and just keep those eyes of your heart on Jesus, which we read in this next verse. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. That's faith. He was looking at Jesus. He was seeing who Jesus was and what he was capable of. And not just seeing that he's potentially able to do something. He, there was something in him that said, I'm laying claim to that in you. I'm, I am, my faith is receiving it, like, like is, has been said in the scripture elsewhere that the kingdom of God, from the days of John the Baptist, the kingdom of God has been preached, and the violent take it by force. The kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force, is actually what it says. That thing of faith that, that doesn't just like behold the potential, but says, mine, I'm taking it even though I'm unworthy. Verse 8, For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to the one, go, and he goes, and another come, and he comes, and the servant do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled. Do you know that your faith can impress Jesus, by the way? He marveled. He was impressed. He wondered at him and turned around and said to the crowd, who were the crowd? Those were the Jews that were following him. And he said, I have not found such great faith, not even in all of Israel. <laughs> this Roman Gentile is putting you guys to shame. What had made him amazed at his faith? It was the understanding specifically of Jesus's authority and how that worked. And so faith is perceiving the authority of Jesus and, can I say, driving the stake of your heart, the the nailing the colors of your mast to, to, to that. It's driving a, a stake into that and saying, this is where I stand. This is what I cling to. I'm not, gonna, I'm not looking at any other source. Jesus is my source. Jesus is my everything. That's faith. And uh, in our need to, in our need question to ask ourselves, do we ask Jesus to rescue us? Which is kind of like Jesus out there, we're over here, God come from out there and help me over here and you kind of stay distant from me and do we kind of ask him to, to kind of rescue us or do we look to him confident in his ability? In other words, we go to him. 
I know you've got answers. I know you have the answers. I know you're the only one with the answers. I am like that woman with the alabaster box. I am finding where you are and I'm getting you. And that does not stop the day you first received Jesus. That is every day there forward. It's the way you live, the Christian life, grabbing a hold of Jesus as your source, as your everything, confident in him who is fully able even to be raised from the dead and able to do everything that you have need of. Do we believe in the sureness of Jesus' authority and do we trust in it? We're all going to trust in something. Do you know that, right? You know that. We all are going to trust in something. Sadly, many of us in the church, many of the church, live not trusting in Jesus. And as Mickey often says, trust is really the essence of what faith is. Yeah, so Jesus is the one. Let's relish in his forgiveness. Let's relish in it. The grace bestowed upon us. Um, let's place our confidence solely in his ability and let's yield uh, to his lordship. Um, let's pray.